Our gospel reading this morning is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 12 through 23. You can find it at page 3 of the New Testament section of your pew Bibles if you'd like to follow along. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what has been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. We celebrate the written word of Scripture. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The Bible is full of scary stories. Stories full of violence, intrigue, betrayal, generally despicable behavior, stuff we rarely read in church and with good reason. When I hear someone's planning to read the entire Bible cover to cover, I often quote Mark Twain, responding to a letter suggesting that Huckleberry Finn belonged in the children's section of the library, Twain wrote, I am greatly troubled by what you say. I wrote Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn for adults exclusively, and it always distresses me when I find that boys and girls have been allowed access to them. The mind that becomes soiled in youth can never again be washed clean. I know this by my own experience, and to this day I cherish an unappeasable bitterness against the unfaithful guardians of my young life who not only permitted but compelled me to read an unexpurgated Bible through before I was 15 years old. None can do that and ever draw a clean, sweet breath again this side of the grave. Of all the Bible's scary stories, perhaps this morning's text in Matthew's Gospel is more disturbing, more terrifying to the average Christian sitting in the pew than any of them. I've always wondered what Zebedee said to his wife when he got home from work that day. Zebedee trudges into his house, shouting as usual, Honey, I'm home. The wife shouts from the kitchen, Oh, hey, Zeb, dinner's almost ready. Then she looks up and does a double take. 
Wait a second. Where are the boys? Um, how did he explain to her that they jumped up and left him in the boat to follow Jesus, the carpenter's son? How did he explain that they seem to have left the family business? How does he explain that they won't be home for dinner and he's not sure when or if they'll be home at all? There's a great deal packed into this short passage. Jesus learns that John the Baptist has been thrown into jail, so he withdraws to the backwaters of Capernaum in Galilee. He makes a home there, and from that place off the beaten path, he proclaims the kingdom of God. Matthew uses the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is near, he says, close by, close enough perhaps that people could reach out and touch it or choose to live in it which would mean folks would have to turn around. They would have to repent, repent from living in the other kingdom, the kingdom of fear and scarcity and violence and domination. Turn around and live in God's creative, humane society, what Martin Luther King called the beloved community. Then Jesus begins gathering disciples And through teaching, preaching, and healing, begins to show us what the kingdom looks like. It's the gathering of disciples part that scares a lot of folks. Peter and Andrew, James and John, drop everything to follow. Is that what it means? Is that what it means to follow Jesus? Is that what it means to respond to Christ's call? Well, yes and no. Vocation and calling are very important in the Christian tradition, and yet a Lilly study a few years ago showed that, other than clergy, most church folks don't think of themselves as being called. They don't feel called. They have a hard time seeing a direct connection between what they do and what they believe. Lutheran Seminary President uh, David Lose offers an intriguing theory as to why that might be the case. And along with the weekend that some of us just spent with John Philip Newell, that theory has shifted my way of looking at what it means to follow Jesus. Lose wonders whether part of the problem is focusing on the connection between what people do and what they believe, maybe, he suggests, calling is less about what we do and who we understand, more about who we understand we are. Think about it for a moment, he says. God's call isn't simply to do something, but rather to be something, to be a child of God. Maybe being comes before doing. Maybe being even makes doing possible. Maybe that's what summons such an immediate response from Peter and Andrew, James and John, that they felt called to be more than they had ever imagined they could be. They probably had no idea what being fishers of people even meant at this point in the story, but they do know that Jesus sees something in them, something of value and worth. They have no idea where they'll go, what they'll do, But they do know that Jesus is calling them to be disciples, and they trust that the rest will become clear in time. 
Every Sunday during our announcement time, we say something to the effect that we build our community around the truth that we are all beloved children of God. And we don't mean all of us here in this room or all of us connected with the congregation or all of us who are Presbyterians and Christians, but all of us, all people, all of us are children of God. Even those who don't quite know what being a child of God exactly means. God values and honors and loves us all. Now that might sound sweet and cozy in a let's all sing kumbaya sort of way. And you might be thinking, well, if that's following Jesus, that's not too scary. And some of you might even be thinking, that can't be it. That's too easy. But as Richard Rohr puts it in the quotation on your bulletin covers, following Jesus changes everything. John Philip Newell said Friday night in his talk here that understanding ourselves as God's beloveds is the key to transformation. Understanding ourselves as God's beloveds is the key to transformation. If we are all God's beloveds, if, as Julian of Norwich put it in the 14th century, we are not only from God but of God, along with all the rest of God's creation, then God can't be domesticated into being a God that looks only after our country, our species, our religion, me and mine. And that understanding, that way of being, is life-altering and world-altering and radical. It calls for a response, the response of acting and doing and being with others in a way that honors the sacredness of all God's creation and every person in it. It's not remotely easy. It takes us out of our cozy assumptions about insiders and outsiders and privilege. And it's exactly what Jesus spent his ministry doing, challenging those cozy assumptions and doing the hard work of loving people as though we are all God's beloveds. And that is hard. What is harder, my friends, than listening with an open heart to someone with whom we disagree? or don't like? What is harder than making room for people with needs that are not our own? What is harder than seeing the blessings that we have as blessings given for the benefit of all God's children to be shared for the common good? What is harder than standing up to a culture that tells us to put me and mine first, that says, for example, being a good father or mother means taking care of your own child's health and education, while not caring about the health and education of other people's children? What is harder than not only loving your neighbors as ourselves, but loving our enemies? And what is a greater threat to all those other kingdoms that dominate the world today, the kingdoms of greed and power, self-righteousness and privilege, all the kingdoms that thrive on creating barriers between people instead of drawing them into relationship, all those barriers of religion and race, income, politics, education, gender, sexuality, nationality, social status, occupation. What is a greater threat to them than seeing each person, each and every person, as of God. Poet Mary Oliver wrote, My work is loving the world. What is harder 
than loving the world the way that God loves it. Most of us do it in fits and starts. Most of us never get it perfectly right. We keep on working at it. We keep on learning how to do it. And that's why we're here. This calling to be God's beloved children isn't just for individuals. It's also for congregations, for our congregation. We spend a lot of time here at First Presbyterian Church doing, and that's good. Our motto is together we serve, and serving is in our DNA. Speaking up and acting for the well-being of God's planet and people is in our DNA. But perhaps, before figuring out what we are called to do as a congregation, we can remind each other what we are called to be. Because God is calling our congregation to be the gathering of God's beloved children. God is calling our congregation to be a place of welcome and acceptance. God is calling our congregation to be a sanctuary where the good news of the kingdom is proclaimed and all find healing, where we are sent forth expecting that whomever we meet, wherever, we will encounter God's beloveds. As I mentioned earlier, a number of us, of us spent much of the weekend with John Philip Newell. He's a spiritual leader, an author, a scholar, a peacemaker who writes about Celtic Christianity and the sacredness of all being, and about the saving reality that we are all God's beloveds. In one of his books, Dr. Newell tells a story about giving a talk in Ottawa to an interfaith audience. Among the audience was a Canadian Mohawk elder who'd been invited to make observations about the similarities between his First Nations spirituality and Celtic Christianity. At the end of Newell's talk, the elder stood at the podium with tears in his eyes. He said, as I have been listening, I've been wondering where I would be tonight. I've been wondering where my people would be tonight. And I have wondered where we would be as a Western world tonight if the mission that had come to us from Europe centuries ago had come expecting to find light in us. We live in a turbulent time in our country and in the world. It is time to speak, time to stand up, time to act to protect God's beloved people and creation. We are here today and every Sunday for what is foundational to that, for what makes that possible. That is to remember that we are called to be, to be God's beloved children, and let that grace-filled identity seep into the deepest parts of ourselves. I trust that the rest of what we need to do in following Jesus will become clear. May it be so for you and for me. Amen.